1: Institute of Art and Ideas, articles, videos and
0: podcasts. Hello and welcome to Philosophy for Our Times, the podcast that brings you the world's leading thinkers on today's biggest ideas. Are humans incapable of weighing up risk rationally and are governments any better? On this week's episode, we're discussing risk and rationality in the age of COVID-19 help us debate the philosophy of risk, we're joined remotely by Nobel Prize winning economist Daniel Kahneman, Harvard psychologist Steven Pinker, and human rights activist Shami Chakrabarti.
2: So really, we, the, the question should be reframed as when should the judgments of some humans license restrictions on
0: the choices of other humans? If you enjoyed today's episode, don't forget to like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave us a review, join the conversation on Facebook and Twitter, and head over to our website, iai.tv. Back now to our host for this week's debate, Anil Ananthaswamy.
3: Risk is at the centre of current concern, and most agree that one preventable death is one death too many. But we have been content to allow 17,000 flu deaths a year in the UK that could be radically reduced if vaccination was compulsory. We allow an estimated 3 million people to die each year from alcohol, that's one in 20 of all deaths, when a global ban on production would stop this slaughter. Are humans incapable of weighing up risk rationally? Are governments any better? Should we seek to reduce all risks and outlaw activity we deem dangerous? Or should we accept that all actions carry risk and it is up to each of us to determine the level of risk we are prepared to take? Shami, Stephen, Daniel, welcome. Thank you very much being on this panel. Uh, I'm going to start off the debate with uh, a question, are humans incapable of weighing up risk rationally? So Stephen, can we start with you?
2: It's a strange question. Humans compared to whom? Compared to God? Compared to some advanced race of space aliens? Obviously, some humans must be capable of weighing up risks. Or we'd have no benchmark that would allow us to judge whether anyone is being rational or irrational. And obviously, when it comes to everyday risks, we're all capable of some rational judgment because we, uh, the world is a dangerous place and, and uh, most of us stay alive. The, the uh, annual death rate from accidents is less than one one-hundredth of one percent. So that means most of the time, people aren't driving into incoming traffic. Uh, people don't take a, a shortcut from the top floor of a tall building by jumping over the balcony, but they take the stairs, they keep their kids out of danger. Uh, and, and contrary to the advice of a certain world leader, people don't uh, drink bleach to ward off infectious disease. Uh, at the same time, the work of, of uh, our fellow pa- panelists, Danny Kahneman, shows that we don't appreciate much smaller risks that can only be ascertained through large data sets that give us uh, actuarial probabilities. An obvious example is that people are uh, far too afraid of plane travel compared to automobile travel. Uh, because of the availability of uh, images and anecdotes of uh, plane disasters. After 9-11, for example, there were probably an extra 1,500 extra deaths in the United States when people stayed off planes, which they irrationally thought were uh, dangerous, and drove instead, which was uh, far more hazardous. So really, the, the question should be reframed as, when should the judgments of some humans license restrictions on the choices of other humans? And this raises some additional questions. Uh, the uh, issues that, that, uh, that you posed at the beginning were, were couched in terms of a we, but the question is, who is the we? Uh, in practice, we're talking about government coercion over individual choices. So the question is, when are those licensed? And the answer's got to be sometimes, but in general, we, in general, not. All actions have risk because you can't just do one thing. If we wanted perfect safety, we would stay in bed all day, and, and even that isn't perfectly safe. And there's no, there can't be a rational answer to what is the correct level of risk among a set of alternatives, each one of which poses some risk. Uh, although there can be a rational answer to how to keep those choices consistent. And since there is no no such thing as we, there are only some humans. I mean, those in government exerting power over other humans. The question is. Uh, how can we ensure that those wielding power do so in, um, in, in justifiable ways, given that they themselves are subject to the same irrationalities as everyone else? The obvious example being responses to terrorism, where in order to keep their populations uh, safe, uh, the leaders of our governments started two catastrophic wars, uh, set up a whole uh, bureaucracy that uh, with a threat to civil liberties, for For homeland security to protect people against a, a risk, namely terrorism, which is a tiny fraction of the risks that that uh, that we incur from uh, other sources uh, and finally, uh, since these questions are being raised during the covid pandemic, I it's essential to make a, a key distinction that we're not talking about risks that individuals incur, such as whether someone uh, who has cancer chooses to uh, take some elective but potentially dangerous uh, therapy. Because uh, we're talking about diseases that are infectious, where your actions are, do not simply involve risk that you assume yourself, but risks that you impose on other people. And that completely reframes the debate. It's more similar to do we allow someone to you know, spray machine gun fire uh, in a crowded place, their liberty is kind of beside the point when it comes to the cost that they're imposing on others. And in most of the debates that we're having now, that is what is at issue, not people's willingness to incur risks themselves.
3: Shami, your, your take on that question?
1: So picking up very much from, um, from, from where Stephen um, left, gamblers chase it, Actuaries count it, and insurance brokers monetize it, but, but I generally form my views on risk from a human rights perspective. Um, I attempt to value all lives equally rather than some over others, but that is complex in practice and it requires the consideration of civil and political rights as well as social, economic and cultural ones. Now, given, as we've heard, that there's no such thing as a risk-free life or society, the balancing of risks can't simply be done on the basis of statistics or, for example, numbers of deaths from a particular activity or course of action. There are other, perhaps less quantifiable risks, for example, to an individual's life or quality of life, from, for example, banning alcohol or mountaineering or or even from using um, Uh, Torture in the infamous ticking bomb scenario. Conversely, to completely ignore the good of the many and just always make individual judgments would effectively mean the end of society and it would be intolerably unjust to the vulnerable. Um, Not least, again, as Stephen said, in the case of the spread of a deadly and highly infectious pandemic. So a human rights approach identifies which individual rights are absolute and which are a little more qualified. And in the case of that latter and larger group of liberties, interferences with the individual freedom may be justified for the protection of others uh, when proportionate and crucially when applied in a non-discriminatory manner. Now leaving people to take certain risks with their own lives is a good liberal principle for any democratic society but not when they are also risking the lives of others. Hence we don't ban alcohol but we regulate its strength and its sale and we forgive people driving under its influence. Um, That's why I think some of the more libertarian complaints about the COVID-19 lockdown have seemed so selfish and out of kilter with a lot of the general public mood, if not all of it. Thank
3: you. Um, Daniel, your take? This subject is very much in your wheelhouse.
4: Well, um, the question, are humans incapable of weighing risk rationally, is ambiguous. Does it refer to individual humans or to humanity? In either interpretation, the short answer to the question is no. Uh, Individuals and societies are certainly capable of rational, reasonable action. I prefer to avoid the term rationality because it's a technical term, and certainly people are not able to act rationally, but they are capable of acting reasonably. Now, I prefer to focus on societies and the ability of societies to act rationally. Societies that are guided by good science can deal appropriately with threats that are familiar and immediate, like hurricanes. Uh, however, some threats pose a challenge to the human mind, and there are two that are highly prominent these days. Threats that draw exponentially and with a lag are completely incomprehensible. So a 27% increase, a daily increase in the rate of a pandemic means doubling every three days, and it means that in 30 days it grows by a factor of 1,000 the human mind is completely incapable of dealing with with exponential growth. So threats of that kind, risks of that kind, will will need some other treatment than human intuition or, or human unaided reason. The implication, of course, of exponential growth is that the threat still looks very small when it is, in fact, enormous. And we've seen very costly, the cost of delays in human lives has been very large. This poses a question about how can we better deal with threats of that kind. Now, another type of threat that are vague and grow slowly by human scale, but have a tipping point, uh, those threats are also a challenge. And of course, these are features of climate change. We're likely to be too slow in reacting to pandemics and unlikely to treat climate change as seriously as war. Uh, We can mobilize for war. We should be able to mobilize for uh, other risks that affect humanity that that may be greater. But for that, human intuition is good for war. It is not good for climate change just as it is not good for pandemics. when ships navigate through straits or canals, they take on a pilot whose authority, I believe, is higher than the captain. And science must be that pilot in, in situations or threats that the human mind doesn't cope with very easily. And the key question for our time is whether societies can adapt to this requirement. And the question, of course, is most, is most acute for democracies. Can democracies mobilize sufficiently uh, for risks that affect all of humanity? Compared to those very large questions, the the personal and individual risk-taking is, uh, I think, almost a small problem. Clearly, uh, we have norms about what is acceptable risk. Those norms are affected by, on the one hand, by externalities, what is the balance between the benefits to individual and the cost to others. You know, when do we stop a very happy party going on in one apartment uh, because it's affecting the sleep of other people? And we don't. Uh, And actually, there is a balance. We don't interfere with the party immediately. We, We wait a little. And so there is that balance. There is a balance of paternalism when do we do things for people's own good and like forcing motorcycle uh, bikers to to wear helmets that they don't want to wear. And those are social norms which are evolving. Uh, We clearly uh, have become more paternalistic in most places. Uh, But the key issue is going to be, I think, for all of us, the role of science in this and and how science can change and society can change to accommodate risk that we're not ready for. Great. Well, thank you. Thank you, everyone.
3: You've all laid out the various nuances that we have to consider when we are talking about risk. So for the next part of the debate, we'll essentially look at three themes. And uh, let's start with the first one. You know, if the act of analyzing risk, uh, as you all explained, wasn't difficult enough to start with, how do we decide when this risk becomes too high? That is to say, who decides where the line is drawn and how do they reach that conclusion? And Daniel, I think this leads on from what you've been just saying, so you can
4: start by tackling this question. So whenever I hear a question about what we should decide, you know, I always ask myself, who is we? Collections of individuals or societies? And am I asked for my wishes or am I constrained to the possible? And do I respond to how we should decide or, or how we do decide? I don't think there is a clear answer to how we should decide on the balance and those issues. How we do decide is clearly there are evolving norms in society. The, the norms, and I think Steve has been very eloquent on that subject. The norms are, are invo- evolving and the situation in some ways is getting better. On the other hand, we've all seen in the last few years that a lot of progress can be reversed fairly, fairly quickly. And that applies in, to the domains of risk, both individual and social. Stephen? Yes. The, uh, I, I think the key question in uh
2: making sense of these these trade-offs, these um, imponderables, is uh, since government is the exercise of power, under what circumstances is that exercise legitimate? We just, we can't equate government with we because government is just another bunch of people and they have their own cognitive infirmities, they have their own incentives such as maximizing their own power. We can't simply say this is what we ought to do and then immediately empower Uh, people in government to implement it. Those are two different steps. So I think there there are clearly cases in which we uh, legitimately empower government to control individual choices, where in a democracy we agree that that is a legitimate function of government. When Danny talked about uh, climate change, he actually mentioned two distinct uh, impediments to dealing effectively with it. One of them is whether individuals have the uh, uh, appropriate sense of alarm about danger that may only manifest itself in the future that creeps up on us day, day to day. But the other problem that you mentioned is the, the problem of um, externalities, of, uh, of public goods, of tragedies of the commons, where even if, uh, even if I have, let's say, a correct assessment of the danger that climate change poses, there's just nothing I can do about it by myself. I can forego meat, I can... Uh, take a bicycle instead of a car, that's just not going to make a, a dent in climate change unless everyone else does it at the same time. And of course, everyone else goes through the same calculation, not just at the level of individuals, but the level of countries. The United States can legitimately say, why should we cut back on our emissions if uh, China and India are, are building uh, one coal fired plant after another? So there are certain kinds of decisions that are good for everyone individually, but only if everyone makes them, such as uh, decarbonizing the economy, and we can say that it's it's one of the legitimate functions of government to bring about uh, public goods that individuals could not. Uh, that can be done through, through taxation. So since you have to tax uh, something, uh, there could be the so-called Pigovian taxes where since you've got, a, something has to be taxed, you may as well tax the things that are harmful and not tax the things that are helpful, more tax on, you know, sugary beverages than on, uh, and vegetables. Uh, it's no more coercion, coercive than the other way around. But, uh, since, since something has to be taxed, that brings about the uh, benefit to, to everyone or what, um, Danny's uh, uh, sometime collaborators, uh, Richard Thaler and Cass Sunstein, call nudges or libertarian paternalism, where governments don't coerce people, but they uh, uh, manipulate the uh, the environment so that people, just by following their, their natural inclinations, do what's good for them. But if they don't want to, they always have the option of defying it, such as um, having to tick a box to opt out of retirement contributions instead of opt into them. Neither one is more coercive than the other, but human nature being what it is, people uh, go with the default, and if you have it as an opt-out, more people do what's good for them. So there's a kind of paternalism uh, without the uh, coercion. Just to go back to a theme that several of us have raised, there are cases in which uh, we shouldn't confuse individual liberty with harm to others and contagious disease uh, is a prime example where we can say it is a legitimate function of government to protect some people against others, including the threat of contagious disease, just as governments legitimately protect people against violent depredations of others, they can protect people against uh, the spread of contagious diseases by others. But the the overall, the bottom line is that government coercion is uh, something that the uh, shouldn't allow without thinking through when it is legitimate when it isn't it, it sometimes it's legitimate very often it is not
3: shami as someone who's been involved in having to take decisions about people at risk this is something you've been thinking about in practical terms so how would you address this whole issue especially when it comes to thinking about governments being the ones yeah. that create behavioral norms you know uh, nudging sure
1: um, and and Absolutely, the legislators, the um, judges, legislators and ultimately ultimately, um, the executive probably in both, in both jurisdictions that we're having this conversation in um, by the science fiction of Zoom. But I think that Daniel's um, pre-question about who is we is kind of crucial here. Uh, who is we? When there are competing risks and competing interests you know the we and the, and the identity of the we, who's making the decision about what is a tolerable and what is an intolerable risk is is just hugely significant. So, for example, Stephen takes the the um, example of climate change. Now, if I'm um, a very wealthy, uh, very very wealthy person with lots invested in fossil, fume, uh, uh, fossil uh, fuel, fossil fuel. And I've made billions out of fossil fuel. And I don't particularly want to turn that around. I, um, I don't have children and grandchildren. I've got to a certain age. I may be of a mind to say that, you know, if the, if the planet's coming to its natural end, it's going to be, you know, sometime after my own, um, my own death. Maybe that's an acceptable risk for me. And, um, and for a cohort of people like me who have made my wealth and enjoy a quality of life in that, in, in that sense. And I don't particularly choose to care about, um, about the next generation and, and those after that. Now, now clearly, some, you know, there are other people, younger people in particular, um, and people who have a different, a different view to who is we. And I'm thinking about more people on the planet, including in places where climate change is more acute even now, and people yet to come. Somebody's got to mediate that. And in a democracy, what we want is more transparency um, and more democracy around the decision making, um, around who is the... And similarly, with this current pandemic, And it, 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 in the United Kingdom, there are some people who have been making not quite Trumpesque statements, but... But certainly, uh, railing against lockdown, railing against social distancing measures, in a in a fairly sort of right wing libertarian, let the vulnerable shield themselves. I'm I'm all right. Some of these people are actually relatively aged themselves, but they 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 they, they think that they're sort of immunised by a life. Of privilege, which to, to a great extent they are, just not from not from this pandemic. And even if you're a spreader and not someone who's going to suffer, you could be spreading to um, to yes, a vulnerable person. And some vulnerability is hidden. And what we have seen is this is not a great leveler at all. This pandemic. Some people are suffering a great deal more than others. Frontline health workers for example, but also people in certain ethnic groups, men, it seems more than women. Um, and, and, and we are connected. It's just that we are not all empowered um, to, to make decisions about risk.
3: Given all the caveats that uh, all three of you have raised about the terminology, you know, what do we mean by we, uh, individual risks versus other kinds of risk? I think this brings us nicely to the next theme of the debate, which is trying to look at you know, how can we build society to better calculate and mitigate risk, keeping in mind all the caveats that you've already raised? So, Shamin, maybe you can continue with uh, what you were talking about and then, you know, kind of segue to practical ways of calculating and mitigating risk.
1: Well, I very much liked, uh, again, Daniel's metaphor of the pilot and the canal. Because um, on, on both when it comes to the pandemic and when it comes to climate change, and these are two huge global um, emergencies at, at the moment and, and probably for some time to come, there is this debate about sort of politics versus science or to what extent politicians who are ultimately responsible for decision making um, co-opt scientists or hide behind them without being completely transparent about either scientific uncertainty or competing advice or the fact that it's very easy for a politician to say i'm just following the science i'm just following the science but actually there were other voices in their ears so for example you know whether to lock down or not at, at a particular moment there are no doubt always um business and economic interests saying well maybe a certain number of casualties is acceptable compared to the economic costs and and the human costs that come with some of the economic costs of lockdown I think we need um I think we need more transparency um about science I think we need more voices like Stevens and Daniels in the world and across generations who are not just brilliant um Scientists, but able to talk um, about science in plain English, so that people, um, so that the citizens can can better understand the difference between proper science and and politics. And I and I do think that Daniel's um, pilot metaphor works because the captain may still ultimately be in charge of the ship, but for certain waters, for certain particular perilous parts of the voyage and certain waters, you really do need to hand over to the pilot and not trash the pilot or undermine the pilot or try and co-opt the pilot um, for for other reasons.
3: Daniel, um, I I agree with you. The metaphor is uh, really lovely.
1: Do you see anything in
3: the psychology of an individual that you can bring to bear on this question about calculating and mitigating risk?
4: No, I I hadn't I mean of course I could talk about the psychology of the individual. But but I think the, the more interesting problem that we are dealing with, if I may. Yeah. Is is really the societal one. How can we build society? And here is really the role of science. And we would have what we have seen in the last four years of the Trump administration, uh, we have seen that the in, in certain society where, where religion has a very important role and where economic interests have a very important role, science is just another denomination. There is Science has lost its authority. And how to enshrine and ensure the authority of science, how to ensure the role of the pilot, and under what conditions the pilot has control, seems to me to be very important. That's one issue. And another issue that I see is, is the moral issue, because science is not the only thing that matters in determining what are risks and what are the risks that we should tolerate and accept. And the current pandemic gives a very acute example. And, and the example is that the risks are very unevenly distributed. So all people like me are really at risk, and younger people are really not so much at risk. It's a factor of several hundred to one. It's several orders of magnitude, the level of uh, risk, of personal risk of being infected, depending on your age. And it's sort of interesting that, in a way, we haven't asked ourselves, and maybe we should have asked ourselves, whether this is fair and and whether, we should try to find a way of protecting the old while allowing uh, more freedom to the young. And that's a moral issue and not a scientific issue. But we need both a moral debate and a scientific debate to calculate and mitigate this.
3: Stephen, from your work, especially with Enlightenment now, can you put this effort that societies have to make in context? In how have how, how societies calculated and mitigated risk
2: well the uh, ultimately our goal shouldn't be so much to empower scientists as some kind of uh, tribe uh, and this is one way in which the the pilot metaphor might have have its limitations because the science some of the scientists themselves at the outset of the pandemic alluding to the kind of work that uh, that Danny pioneered and that, that I teach uh, actually made, gave the, the bad advice that people were overly, affected by the available images of people coming down with uh, coronavirus. They were victims of the human bias of uh, reasoning by salient anecdote and that the uh, actual number of cases and number of deaths was actually quite minuscule compared to other risks that that we assume. Um, I won't won't name names. These are people that Danny and I know very very well. Uh, I think they regret their statements now. And what they did was they probably put too much stock in one uh, bias, namely the availability bias, our, our tendency to assess risk by available images and, and uh, anecdotes, and not enough stock in another bias, which Danny alluded to, namely our, uh, uh, our our inability to project exponential growth, that even though it was true that at the early stages of the of the, uh, the pandemic, the number of deaths were rather small compared to other risks that we tolerate, it had the potential for zooming up, which our intuitions did not Factor in, so it isn't really a question of scientists versus non-scientists. It's really more a question of making our entire society more scientific. The journalists, politicians, the uh, the, the, the the pundits, and uh, and ultimately uh, ordinary citizens, because there there is a problem. and Daniel alluded to it, and, and uh, Shami as well, that. Um, a lot of the, what we call scientific illiteracy, say denial of climate change or vaccine safety or uh, evolution is actually not scientific illiteracy and tests of scientific knowledge show that often the deniers of climate change uh, don't know any more or less than the acceptors, but rather it's a question of trust in one um, uh, elite versus others. Uh, Most of us have, even if we ourselves don't understand the climate science, we, we kind of have a sense that the scientists know what they're talking about. And if there's a consensus in that community, we say they're probably right. Not everyone does that. Uh, for for uh, uh, many people, science is itself yet another faction or interest group that, whose uh, conclusions have to be taken with, a, uh, uh, with skepticism. So what we need is a culture, and it's, there's no shortcut to accomplishing that, where we all are open to having our ideas falsified. We are open to evidence. We uh, think in, in in numbers and uh, risks. And this is a kind of common currency that just as even among the, the, the most egregious science deniers, there's not much, say, appeal to astrology. Even Donald Trump doesn't uh, check check the horoscope, at least not publicly. There's certain norms that, uh, that have saturated Um, uh, public life the public realm and more statistical literacy more uh, openness to evidence more willingness to uh, have one's ideas be falsifiable uh, ought to be part of the greater conventional wisdom again it's not easy and I know and I think Danny is perhaps a little more pessimistic as to whether that can be accomplished I don't don't know but uh, that's I, I, I think that's what we should aim for
0: and there's no commitment to pay, so subscribe now to understand the world beyond the surface level.
3: Daniel referred to the inequity and risk between, and he took one example of younger people and older people. And Shami, you alluded to others where we're talking of the risks to healthcare workers Ethnic minorities, certain populations. So, is there ways in which society must start thinking, keeping in mind the human rights approach that you advocate? Yeah. How would you sort of use that to address this question?
1: Yeah. So, I was listening to you know to, to, to Daniel, um, you know, setting this this dilemma about um, um, people's vulnerability to, for example, the pandemic, um, age being an obvious. Um, issue but there are others as well it would seem it is emerging still right? it's a new disease um, and of course the key to the human rights kingdom and um, the, 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 perhaps the most important principle of all is the principle of non-discrimination it's funny people people think that the most important human right when you ask them to to write it down they'll say the right to life well well yes but not quite because we're not immortal um to to my mind the most important human right is the right um against discrimination why because if we treated other people as we'd like to be treated ourselves there would be no torture there would be no murder etc 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 now the problem arises um um in particular, when you have something like the pandemic, which is this natural physical phenomenon, and goodness me, it does discriminate, and so it picks on um, the old and otherwise physically vulnerable. It certainly picks, it would seem, on poor people for for reasons of background, ill health, and diet, and and so on. Um, and 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 who knows in in what other respects? There's talk about gender etc, etc. Now from a human rights point of view, it feels, it feels anathema, almost unacceptable to segregate in a harsh way, to to have a sort of COVID apartheid where we, um, where we lock down on people above the age of whatever it is and impose restrictions on them that we don't impose on others. Um, and, um, but, but equally, Um, We have um, um, possibly, you could call it a scandal here in the United Kingdom, where it seems that whilst the NHS and hospitals were protected by lockdown in order to take the pressure off off the NHS, care homes were not protected. And in particular, there are arguments here about the lack of protective personal equipment to staff working in care homes, and um, people were literally released with COVID from hospitals to care homes of elderly people where they promptly spread the, um, the virus. And of course, that just opens up this idea, this idea that some people count more than others. Um, and traditionally, that's been on racial grounds, that's been on gender grounds. And the problem with something like a pandemic is it can almost make it like a sort of age apartheid instead of a racial one. And that feels, that really does feel unacceptable. So what do you do instead? Well, you do protect people more, but you need to protect them um, with resources. You need to, um, as far as possible, combat the discrimination. And because we are trying to be all in it together, even if some of us are more vulnerable than others. And that is what a democratic society pulling together, a society that values all lives equally, even if some are more vulnerable than others, looks like.
3: There are some very interesting proposals that you have all put on the table, but maybe the current pandemic is really kind of showing us all these fractures in our societies. Do you feel like, you know, there is a tension between risk aversion and liberty in in the context of this pandemic? What will win after the COVID-19 crisis has passed, risk aversion or liberty? So, Stephen, this uh, seems to be a topic that I would love to hear your thoughts on.
2: Well, again, when we talk about liberty, we, it, it's always under the uh, cliche that your your freedom to swing your arms ends where my nose begins. That uh, we legitimately restrict liberty when it involves the infliction of harm on on uh, others. Um, so that's uh, so that that's why we shouldn't frame the debates over contagious disease restrictions in the same way that we do other. Uh, in the voluntary assumption of personal risk like like wearing a helmet uh, uh, when you're uh, on a motorcycle uh, we certainly do have to be mindful of the though, of the uh, restrictions of liberty to make sure that they are not a pretext for governments to expand their powers as of course is happening in countries like Hungary and uh, China uh, I'm sure it's going to happen in, 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 uh, in Russia and other countries where the uh, newfound uh, license to impose restrictions on people, even under the legitimate guise of protecting other people, could certainly be abused. Uh, that uh, we ought to, again, going back to the idea that, that when we empower government to uh, restrict freedom, it should be under some rationale that we can uh, articulate and defend. Here's where government can restrict liberty for these reasons. Uh, otherwise, it, it can't. Uh, In the case of public health measures, again, public health is a really legitimate function of government, perhaps the most legitimate function uh, uh, after uh, reducing violence. Uh, But the uh, extra powers that we give government should be delineated so that they aren't uh, expanded and become a a license for
3: for a pathway to totalitarianism. Daniel, what are your thoughts? Is there a dichotomy at all between liberty and risk aversion? In your
4: mind? Well, not really. I think it's a false dichotomy, and I I heard it as reason versus chaos. Not so. I I think that we are in a situation um, because of the uh, the risk that that we all face, where freedom may have to be abridged. I mean, the question that I was raising earlier about whether democracies can cope is a serious question the questions uh, about the moral questions cannot be avoided. Uh, and and here, you know, as an old person, I was, uh, I had the observation that, you know, old people have been sending young people to die in wars, you know, from time immemorial. And now here is a threat. It's an odd threat, the irony, that old people mm-hmm. are at risk. And and somehow, um, the, there is seems to be an imperative to protect them. There is a way, Shami, I think, of looking at it where the unit that you want to protect is not a life, but a life year. And when you look at trying to protect life years, then the calculus changes completely. And in all of this, I think, uh, p- perhaps... I agree completely with Stephen that governments are many governments are likely to abuse of any powers that are granted them. I think that sci- I agree with Stephen also that science, as it is now, is not completely up to the task. But trying to introduce more reason into government. And introduce more science into governments and changing, altering the institutions of science and government, so that we can have a more rational debate. I think this is getting to be quite urgent.
1: Mm.
3: Shami, from the perspective of a civil rights lawyer, yeah. are are you particularly worried about this time? Uh, you know, the time of this pandemic in terms of what's happening, uh, not necessarily in the UK, but uh, in other countries, some of those countries that Stephen
1: mentioned. There's no doubt that, um, there's no doubt in my mind that some infringements on liberties are necessary and proportionate and, and, and vital even in response to the pandemic. But colleagues are quite right. That doesn't mean that these restrictions can't be used and abused by accident or by design which is why, um, for example, in relation to the coronavirus legislation in the UK, we've insisted on strict time limits and so-called sunset clauses. Um, We've insisted that every measure and every application of a measure um, will be subject to judicial review and to the Human Rights Act. And that's quite a big concession um, under a Conservative government that, 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 that previously has spoken against the Human Rights Act, um, and had its eye on it for possible repeal and, and been quite opposed to judicial review and so on. So that's quite a big concession on on, on the part um, of government. However, there have been inconsistencies in application. Um, and you know I think all the prosecutions so far have had to be have had to be rescinded because of errors. Um, I think more because of error. Uh, and and the rush to legislate and um, and chaotic guidance, rather than in the UK, rather than uh, malice or, or or deliberate oppression. But on a global scale, there's no doubt that we have to be cautious. But what I will say is this: if you compare the pandemic to, for example, the war on terror that followed nine eleven, I'm a lot more optimistic about our ability to turn off some of these measures. Um, when the hard, the hard objective evidence from the scientists and frankly, from our own senses that there is a vaccine or the numbers of deaths are coming down, you know, these are verifiable facts that can lead to a demand for oppressive measures, if you like, restrictions to be ended. Whereas with the war on terror, we were told that we had to adopt a new normal, um, lock people up without charge or trial, um, censor ourselves, do all sorts, even experiment with, um, you know, kidnap and torture in freedom's name. And we were told that we should do this in a war against an abstract noun, which would, of course, go on forever because some some amount of political violence or terrorism has always been a fact of life. So I do think that it is, it is, it is more acceptable to go onto a quasi-war footing in the fight against a pandemic, which is a very real, a very real emergency, rather than, if you like, the metaphorical emergency of um, of the war on terror that could have gone on forever and become a justification for permanent loss of liberty, even in great democracies like ours.
3: There are certain countries right now that are dealing with the pandemic, which has created particularly poignant situations when it comes to people who are living really near the poverty line. So Mm -hmm. for them, a shutdown of the economy, you know, this widespread lockdown is creating other kinds of risks, which is, you know, even in terms of starvation and not having the daily wages to eat meals. And from their perspective, uh, what is being done to protect lives is maybe Mm -hmm. even creating the danger of losing their own lives. So how would you... Think about that particular very simple.
1: I'm, I'm very clear on this. If I, if I could just c- cut in. I sure. think that what you need is symmetric gov- state intervention, not asymmetric state intervention. And if you lock down on liberty and lock down um, on the economy and people's basic means of existence disappear, you have to balance that with... Intervention of a socio-economic kind to give people the um, the income and the food and the shelter and all of the things they need. What is pro- what's problematic is when you have countries that do the lockdown without doing the welfare, and that asymmetric authoritarianism is it, it, it's really, I think, almost almost immoral.
3: Thank you, uh, Shami, Stephen. Daniel, uh, this has been a wonderful discussion.
0: Uh, I appreciate it very much. Thank you again. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Philosophy for Our Times. Remember to like, subscribe and review wherever you listen. And tune in next week for more big ideas from the world's leading thinkers.